Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Yeah, we're starting a brand new sermon series this week called Enduring Faith, and the subtitle is Faith on the Other Side of One of the Worst Years in Human History or in Modern History. I know the sermon title is very clickbaity, uh, but you know, I don't really think that it's much of an over-exaggeration, right? You know, last year was incredibly tough, uh, not just on a global level, but on a personal level for many of you. Many of you have grappled with some really, really harsh reality, so I don't think it's an over-exaggeration. And what we're trying to go after this, with this series, you know, what does faith look on the other side of trauma? What does faith look on the other side of pain and suffering? Is there a possibility for us not just survive, but actually mature, mature and thrive through our trials? And I believe that in God, that is very possible, very, very possible. And so, um, you know, most of us are still reeling from the effect of 2020, and so I think this is super fresh. And I don't want to trivialize any of the suffering and pain, but I believe that through, you know, the, the narrative of the Bible and through what we've seen the Holy Spirit done in our midst, really, you know, there is cause for hope today. Amen. There's cause for jubilant, exuberant hope. There's cause to believe in the words that we just sang. It is not just vain liturgy, but it is truth that we are declaring. Jesus is our redemption. He is the redeeming king, able to redeem us even from the most hellish of circumstances. And doesn't the cross testify of that, that instrument of execution and evil turned into an object of beauty? Can we trust that God is able to do the same in our lives, turning our ashes into beauty? Amen? And so, you know, you might ask, right, Andre, why are you doing this series, huh? You know, it seems very heavy and tough. Uh, you know, this is your first series coming back. Don't you want to take it easy and do something lighthearted? And, uh, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you looking for trouble? Or as my mother say, why are your backside so itchy? Why are you itchy backside? Uh, three reasons, okay? Pastorally, you know, in, in our meetings, you know, uh, you know we, as, pa- as pastors we meet with some of you, uh, we hear that many of you going through um, some real, real harsh stuff, you know, e- either on a personal level, uh, a physical level, or even in an existential level, you know, struggling with some doubts, disappointments, and wrestling with faith. And so, you know, we believe that we really want to speak into that. And yet, at the same time, spiritually, we are convinced and convicted that this moment in time, in spite of the harsh realities that's all around us, is one of the greatest opportune moments for spiritual growth and formation. We so believe in it that that there is such a profound, unique window of opportunity for us to mature in Christ. And prophetically, you know, we we celebrated Easter, uh, you know, two weeks ago, and I shared, you know, that Jesus post-resurrection didn't go to the centers of power. Instead, he came and went to his friends who were doubting, fearful and confused, and he restored them. And doesn't that just show us and reveal to us the tenderness of Christ? Amen? And I believe that God, Jesus, through his spirit, the resurrected king through his spirit, wants to do the same for us today. He wants to restore us. All who struggle, all who are hurting, all who are broken, he wants to restore you. And so today, I'm starting week one of Enduring Faith, and my title of the message is An Invitation to a Journey. And I really believe that faith is not just a thing with grass, it's not just a set of principles, but it really is a journey. I'm going to read a couple of passages that uh, is the teaching text for the series 
before we begin with a word of prayer. Amen? Thanks, enthusiasm. But we'll get there, we'll get there. Don't worry, I, I have faith in you. <laughs> All right, let's read this passage from James chapter 1. It says this, this is the word of the Lord. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In some translations, endurance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Reading also from 1 Peter 1 says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of your presence. Thank you that you meet with your people when we sing, when we proclaim your name. Indeed, God, we recognize, we recognize that we are indeed prone to wonder, prone to leave the God whom we love. And God, we ask for your grace to come upon us this morning. Help us, O oh God, to love you. In and of our own strength, in and of our own ability, we have no strength to, to love you, to endure the trials, the testings of life. We need your grace, O oh God. So Lord, we pray even as we look to Scripture this morning, even as we hear of your word, won't you inspire in us a God-filled hope? Won't you inspire in us strength and grace through your spirit. We thank you for this time of reading your word. Lord, we thank you that it's not just a textbook that we refer, but it's living, it's breathing, it speaks to us this day. So we ask, Spirit of God, speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, let's do an exercise as we begin, shall we? Everyone, uh, just close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Just close your eyes. I want you to imagine yourself at 80 or 90 years old. Just imagine yourself. Uh, I'll try to imagine how you look. I imagine myself with uh, rock art apps at 80, but you know, we need a miracle for that. But yeah, so in all seriousness, imagine yourself at 80 or 90 years old. More specifically, imagine the kind of person you want to be towards the end of your life. Don't think of accomplishments or what's on your resume or what you have done uh, for the world, but think about who you want to be, what you want people to say of you, what you want your eulogy to be as you transition from life on earth into glory. Now, I imagine that many of you would imagine someone who is mature, whole, not easily angered, generous, selfless, kind, loving, wise, contented. A person who has over decades of living has become more like Jesus. Now, with your eyes still closed, think about 2020, think about last year and maybe the start of this year. What was it like for you? How did you live? Imagine telling your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, 80 or 90 years old, about that year, that COVID year, and about how you live and what you did. Now, open your eyes. Now, we start off this exercise to remind ourselves 
that there is a direct link between how we live today and who we become in the future. But we also do so with the best of our imagination to picture ourselves maturing in Christ-likeness. Most of us, you know, we have financial goals for our life, don't we? We desire to make a certain amount of money, to have a certain kind of income by a certain age. Most of us have physical goals. We desire to lift a certain amount of weight or desire to run a certain distance. Most of us have goals uh, for our companies. We lead companies. We have five-year goals, ten-year goals. Most of us have goals even for our children. But for most Christians, many live without a goal in mind for their spiritual maturity, or language we prefer here, Christ-likeness. We don't think incrementally for our spiritual maturity like we would for fitness, for example. We wouldn't think naturally like, this year I want to work on my anger issues, or this year I want to work on being more generous, or this year I want to work on being more contented. We don't think that way. For most of us, we either lack a vision or a desire for maturity, or we think that maturity simply happens to us. There's little to nothing that we can do about it. While it's true that most of the work of transformation happens through the Spirit, there is in fact a whole lot we can do to posture ourselves to co-labor with Christ, to co-labor with the Spirit, and receive and grow in maturity. I'll show you a diagram that uh, we've shown a couple of times in the church, and this is a framework for spiritual formation or better yet, Christ-likeness and maturity that the pastors have come to love. And we've done work on the upper, upper half of the diagram, teaching, practice, community, all centered around the Holy Spirit. And this is why we do certain things in church. This is why we have life groups. This is why we do teaching. This is why we call for the church to practice, to put these teachings into practice. That is how we grow and mature in Christ. I'd like to draw your attention towards the lower half of the diagram. It is done so over time. Notice that the work of maturity has to happen over time. There's a saying that goes, you can age without maturity maturing, but you cannot mature without aging. There is some work, there is some spiritual maturity that only happens as a byproduct of time, as a byproduct of living faithful lives, and that is maturing. But I'd like to draw your attention to another portion of the diagram, and that is this. It's done in spite of, through the hard knocks of life. Through the hard knocks of life or trials, sufferings, and testings. That is how we mature. Now, most psychologists would, would categorize COVID-19 this year that we just lived through as trauma for a generation, a collective and mass trauma experience. I don't think I need to go into the details of how it was traumatic. Many of you have your own personal stories. Now, the hallmark feeling of trauma is this sense of powerlessness, inability to control outcomes. And now we often view pain or trauma in like major or minor kind of categories, right? There's major trauma and then there's minor trauma. There's like big issues and then there's like smaller, more negligible kind of issues. Well, um, I'd like to pull up a quote from Viktor Frankl. Now, if you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, he wrote the book uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He's a psychiatrist and a concentration camp survivor. And uh, his... You know, his story was that he was taken by the SS to Auschwitz and his wife and his family members were immediately put to death in the gas chambers and he spent years, literally the rest of the war, uh, quite literally uh, in hell on earth. And he wrote a book uh, accounting of his uh, experiences and his lessons. And he writes this about man's suffering or pain. He says this, If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. 
Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. And so what he's saying is this, that pain, no matter big or small, trauma, no matter major or minor, if undealt with, has the potential to fill the entirety of the human soul and mind. Pain undealt with has the potential to overwhelm, to overcome our soul. And so we, we cannot just think of trauma, uh, uh, you know, we think of it as like the tragic loss of a loved one, but it could be as simple as the loss of a job or the loss of certain freedoms. Pain is pain, and all of which has the ability, as Franco suggests, to fill up the soul and mind. Now, when we talk about trauma, I know all of us are familiar with the term post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. This is common with victims of abuse and frontline soldiers. And in this, we see how a particular event, moment, or tragedy, the stress and anxiety of it has a lasting compounding effect. It's said that we literally carry trauma in our bodies. It affects even our, our physiology. Trauma has the potential to do that. However, psychologists in the 90s theorized another side of trauma or another possible outcome of trauma, and that is what is known today as post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth. And the basic premise is this, that our hardship, sufferings, and pain could actually be the catalyst to our greatest moments of growth and change. Some people, uh, research shows, empirical evidence seems to show some people grow as a result of trauma. I know it's hard to grasp, but some people actually grow as a result of trauma. Uh, here's a couple of quotes from the article. It says that people develop new understanding of themselves, the world they live in, how to relate to other people, the kind of future they might have, and a better understanding of how to live. Uh, this is a defi secular definition of post-traumatic growth, a positive lifestyle change experience as a result of adversity, other challenges, in order to rise to a higher level of functioning. Now, that same article noted that the depth of growth and change observed was at such a high level that it would not have been possible had that person not experienced the trauma. But to rightly put it, the growth does not occur because of the trauma. It occurs when the person goes beyond an adaptive response, learns how to struggle with the potential transformational possibility of the trauma. The founder of the theory, I know there's a whole lot of psychology, but I'm getting somewhere at this. The founders of the theory goes on to list five observed areas of post-traumatic growth. Number one, an increased appreciation of life. Two, closer and more meaningful relationships. Three, a general sense of greater personal strength. Four, an identification of new possibilities in life. And fifth, growth in the domain of spiritual and or existential matters, or in short, spiritual change. And this is the case we are making for today. Through the painful realities of life that we all experience, dark and ugly as they may be, exists within them the possibility of a greater spiritual maturity and a deeper awareness of God's presence. And we see this story played out all through the Bible. Joseph in prison, Elijah on the run, Daniel in the lion's den, David in Ziklag, Paul in prison, the disciples post Good Friday, or some would call Awkward Saturday. The overarching storyline of the Bible is not once upon a time and then they live happily ever after. Instead, the divine story of God's people has plenty of moments where the narrative in effect says all hell broke loose. 
But the glorious thing about the Chronicles of Scripture is that disappointment is never the end of the story. Not for those who believe in God. Instead, the barren do give birth. The slaves are set free. The promised land is found. The temple is built and rebuilt. Messiah does appear. The kingdom does come and the dead are raised. On the other side of trauma, pain and hardship is purpose, calling, destiny, a greater maturity. Now it's important to first state that God rarely brings trials into our lives but he almost always uses them to bring or to birth something good in and for us if we allow him to. Thomas Keating says this, God will bring people invented our lives and whatever we may think about them, they are designed for the evolution of his life in us. On the words of another Keating, life is a roller coaster. <laughs> Just kidding, but <laughs> the song is stuck in your head, right? You're welcome, because I couldn't sleep last night because of that. I feel so wrong. Okay, this time that we're experiencing, or trials in general, has the potential to either leave us with trauma that we carry or cause us to experience a kind of post-traumatic growth, all of which depends on our response and what we make of it. So we land on this question. How do we not just survive hardships, but capture it as an opportune moment for deep, spiritual growth and formation. And it's with that that we look at our passage of Scripture, James chapter 1. Starting at the top, it says this in Scripture, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Now what words to open an epistle to a church in persecution, disillusion, upset and scattered? The letter was believed to be written by James, the brother of Jesus, sometime in the 60s. And this was following a wave of persecution that hit the church, causing them to be dispersed and scattered. And so you were either killed, imprisoned, or scattered, running away for your lives. And he says this to this group of people in fear, in disarray, disillusion, have joy. Consider it pure joy. Now the word consider is the Greek word hegeomai, which is also translated count it all. And it's an accounting term for all your accounting people. It's as though to say divide your life into a profit or loss, co and loss co column. And if you were to see things the way God sees it, if you were to consider it the way God considers it, you will discover that the result of trials is a net profit and not a net loss. Hegeomai is also used to describe leadership hierarchy in the church. It means to lead, to have authority, or to go before. So James could be saying, let this thought, consider, let this thought, lead, have authority, go before all other thoughts in your mind. Thoughts about your trials, the pain, the suffering, and endure, they are valid. But what supersedes, what leads all other thoughts in your mind is this thought, consider it pure joy. There's a possibility of joy on the other side. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for a light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Or as a preacher puts it, God has a corresponding joy for every trial we find ourselves in. That is good news. Let's move down the rest of the text. It says this, whenever you face trials of many kinds, Notice the language, when and not if. I think of a couple of passages of scripture 
Job says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Don't know what that means. But John, in the book of John, Jesus says this, in this world, you will have trouble. I have good news for you, ladies and gentlemen. Where life is concerned, trouble is the default and ease is the exception. In this life, we will have trouble. Tim Keller writes this, and I quote this many often, but I believe it grounds us in reality. It says this, No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we work to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, die illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Now, one of the reasons why many are disillusioned, why many have their faith in this array, is because churches peddle a version of the gospel that seems to ignore the harsh realities of life. We seem to think that faith equates to suppressing all negativity. And then when the harsh realities of life hit, suddenly we find our faith irrelevant. I've heard it said, when we serve up illusions, we shouldn't be surprised when people have their faith eventually disillusioned. When we serve up illusions, we shouldn't be surprised when folks eventually end up disillusioned. Hear me in saying this, faith does not deny the existence of a problem, it denies it a place of influence. We will face trials. It is what it means to live life on the earth. It says, when you, whenever you face, that word face translates to fall into or trip. That means to say you don't plan for your trials. You don't predict them. You quite literally fall into them. You fall into your trials. They just happen. And then he says many trials. That word trials is the word parasmos, which means temptation, test, or plague, pandemic. And the word many is multicolored, various, major, minor, from an injury to a loss of a loved one. Many kinds of trials. And through this series, we'll be tackling some trials that we face. Doubt, disappointment with God, disillusionment with the church, unanswered prayer. These are things that we grapple with, that we struggle with. And I would like to put it to you, you will struggle with them at some point in your life. And I want to cast a vision through this series that there is the possibility of an enduring, mature faith on the other side of the trials. That doubt, disappointment, disillusionment does not have to have the last word. Hear me, death didn't even have the last word. Why does doubt, disappointment need to have the last word? There can be faith. Moving down the text, it says this, because you know, you know, folks, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That word testing, don't think of it as a test that you sit for, multiple choice or open-ended answers. Think of the test. The word testing translates to learning the genuineness of something through use and examination. So you think of a test, the best way to see it is like, suppose Lamborghini came out with an SUV. And they say, like, we have the best SUVs in the world whatever that looks like, or like an off-road vehicle. And so, you know, they designed it, they put in a bunch of functions and say, this thing, man, can like, you know, like hike up the tracks of like Borneo or Sabah or whatever, you know, this thing like is designed for like off-road stuff, it's designed to be beaten up, you can like, you know, hike up a mountain with a Lamborghini, I know I'm exaggerating. And so, you know, the, the designer puts in these functions, he designs it, he builds it, and then what do they do? They take the car and they put it through a fuel test. 
they put it through a few tests to literally take whatever the claims of the manufacturer designer is and put it to the test, put it to actual use and examination. Now, what few tests are to a vehicle, trials are to the believer. It's to see whether we actually have the capacity to do what our maker says that we can do, or is it all hype? And then he goes on to say that your faith, the testing of your faith, produces perseverance. It produces endurance. Now, depends on, depending on the translation, this can be translated to endurance or even steadfastness. Interestingly, the root word for that word, uh, perseverance, is the same as the word that Jesus uses in John chapter 15. Abide in me. Meno. Abide in me. It's to, as though to say, trials have the ability to produce within us a kind of abiding, a staying, enduring power. It's not just a gritty kind of endurance, but it's a steadfastness in God. This is the goal of trials, not that you become a hardier person, but you become a person who knows how to abide in Christ in the face of the storms of life. That is what is produced in you through trials. And the last part of verse before we hit some points. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So that you may be mature and complete. Or in a message, it translates it beautifully. Don't get out of anything prematurely. Premature. Before you mature. Let it do its work in you. Let endurance, this steadfast, almost stubborn abiding in Jesus, do its work in you. Our job is to abide, and the Spirit works in us. So where scripture and modern psychology land is this. The best way to approach our trials and sufferings is not to avoid them, is not to suppress them, but is to stare at it long enough so that we may discover meaning, purpose, and joy. And this is what we hope to unpack in the rest of the weeks to come. Suffering can very well be our preacher and teacher. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. It was Luther who said that he could never properly understand some of the Psalms until he endured suffering. He goes on to say this, a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. And so that's the foundation to which we're building this series upon, that there is a redemptive possibility to the hellish circumstances, the harsh realities of life. But to close off, I want to talk about a couple of things that works against us maturing or choosing to mature through our trials. The first is this. It's a term called spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing is a term that psychologists coined. And uh, what spiritual bypassing is, is this. It's the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. So you think about it. We do this often in church, right? A person is sad. Hey, don't be sad. You have to drive the Lord. I struggle with forgiveness. Hey, don't struggle with forgiveness. Christ really forgive you. You have to forgive others. We do this often. Well, there is truth in what we're saying. Right? Oftentimes, we suppress, we push aside real legitimate emotional pain. We do that often, don't we? Right? Hear me in saying this, unbelief is definitely a sin. 
but faith in God isn't deaf to your emotions. Now, I think of the show WandaVision. How many of you have seen it? I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to spoil it. Cover your ears. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hey, calm down. Right, get Disney+. Plus. Right. But WandaVision, uh, wow, I might spoil it. Hey, cover your ears and say la la la. Okay, I shall, I shall move past it. Okay, I'll just ha- get to the, the point I want to make, okay? You all, uh, watch more TV. <laughs> you never hear this on a sermon, right? Watch more TV. Right. But that's our story, right? This whole idea of spiritual bypassing, right? We say we are blessed when we are really sorrowful. We say we are at peace when we are really grieving. We say we are settled when we are disappointed. We say we are believing when we are really doubting. Our spiritual aliveness is not seen in our ability to suppress griefs. Our spiritual aliveness is seen in our ability to carry our grief to God. Scazzaro says this, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. To be human is to feel. And even Jesus, being human on the earth, felt the full spectrum of human emotion. Now, church environments like this service, we design it to be happy, jump for joy, celebrate, rejoice in the testimony. And this is, this is our faith. It means to celebrate, be rejoice, and happy. But this, this does not capture the full spectrum of what the kingdom of God is. There is space to lament. There is space to grieve. There is space to be sorrowful. There is space to be comforted. I love this quote, you know, and it really speaks to me. Ben Meyer says, it's the cultural triumph of the smile leaves behind a trail of casualties where evangelical churches theologize happiness and ritualize a smile. Sad believers are spiritually ostracized. Sadness is the scarlet letter of the contemporary church, embroidered proof of a person's spiritual failure. The sinless humanity of the Son of God was manifest not in happiness or success, but in a life of sadness and affliction. In erasing sadness from our culture, we also erase Christ. Which leads me to my second point. One of the things that conspires against us maturing in our trials is an incomplete understanding of faith. It's an incomplete understanding of faith. Now, what comes to mind when you think of the word faith? For some, you know, it's this really pious person contending, breaking, shabbying, doing all the things to claim that, to claim God's promises. And this is beautiful, a robust, resolute faith. When I think of faith, I think of my grandma who well into her 70s, still praying every day, still loving Jesus up to her final breath. Now, the word used to describe faith in the text that we read is the word pistis, and it can be translated as faith or another equally as valid translation, faithfulness. We think of faith primarily as this bullish, press-through kind of thing. It's a resolute belief, but it is also trust and faithfulness. Faith has got to do with our belief in God, whereas faithfulness has got to do with how well we hold on to that belief and trust in God in the face of harsh circumstances. Or what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. What a vision for a faithful life. Now I want to share a diagram, and you know, I've shared many diagrams, but this diagram has quite literally saved my faith in the time where I was really struggling. And this diagram, you know, it's not linear, but uh, it's someone plotting the life of faith in a believer. It starts off with this recognition of God, this awareness of God that we come to where we are saved, moves on to a life of discipleship, 
a productive life. And many of us go on this inward journey. We discover, you know, some of our bands, our dysfunctions, and God does a deep inner work in us. And this is not, this is not linear in the sense, you know, it's more dynamic than that, it's more fluid, but I think captures many of our faith journeys. And at some point in our lives, many theologians, many people study spiritual direction would all agree we will hit this thing called the wall. The writers of the Bibles have all sorts of metaphors for this phenomenon. The desert, the wilderness, the darkness, pruning, a crisis of faith, or dark night of the soul. Now, why did I bring this up? I've had so many friends, I'm sure you do too, who at some point in their life struggle with doubt, disappointment, unanswered prayer. And because they struggled, they decided that perhaps Christianity is not for me or perhaps I'm not a faithful person in the first place. Many people think struggling with God means we lack faith, but that's simply not true. Struggling with God is a sure sign that we truly have faith. If we never struggle, our faith would never grow. And I'll put it to you that struggling is the journey, is the path toward maturity. In a way, struggling, the war, testings, and doubt are not telltale signs of spiritual regression. They can be a kind of spiritual progression because the pathway to a mature faith is through the war, not to transcend it, not to bypass it, but through the war. And many people live their faith not because they struggle. They live their faith because they perceive that they are not allowed to struggle. And our faith has room for struggle. In struggle, be mature. Last point is this. It's our approach towards unavoidable suffering. Our approach towards unavoidable suffering. Viktor Frankl, uh, you know, he notes that the ones who survived Auschwitz in his book weren't necessarily the smartest nor the most physically fit, but those who had discovered meaning and purpose for life. Frankl says that we can discover meaning in life in three ways. One, in creating a work, Two, experiencing something or encountering someone. And three, by the attitude we take toward unavoidable suffering. Now, coming back to post-traumatic growth, uh, psychologists who do, a work, do, do work in it uh, notes that the difference between someone who lives in a trauma, who has identified with trauma and lives perpetually in a trauma, uh, and on the other side, someone who bypasses, who ignores and suppresses that traumatic experience, there's this middle point, which is, where post-traumatic growth happens. And psychologists note that there are two factors that has to be present in a person who grows through trauma. And the first is this. The first is discovering meaning for their pain. And the second is acceptance that distress and growth coexist. Isn't that powerful? And that is the claim we are making here today, that in hardship, there can be meaning. There can be a possibility of growth. And this is the claim, I believe, is infinitely possible for those who follow Christ. Because Christ redeems, because Christ saves, because Christ gives us a purpose for our pain. The word, I didn't get to this word, but it says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. Is this word Adelphoi, which means the family of God? That call is specific to all who follow Christ. That as Christ followers, because of Jesus and his resurrection, you can have pure joy. You have every reason to have joy in your trials. 
And we see this hope in, Paul's letter, in Peter's letter. It says this, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's meaning, there's purpose. Now, for those here, those listening at home who are hurting now, hear me in saying this, I don't want to make light of your experiences nor trivialize your pain. They are real, they are painful, some of which downright evil and unjust. But my invitation to you is today is not to see all your pain in a positive light. That's not my goal for you. Instead, it's to let God in. It's to know that He's able to work good in you and through you. You don't have to conclude today that all things are happy and hunky-dory. But my invitation to you today is to let God in. Let God in. Go on a journey with Him. Go on a journey with Him. And He's able to surely work good in you. To conclude, if you're struggling, you are not alone. Or rather, don't go through it alone. Struggling does not mean you have lost your faith. Rather, we don't mature in faith without struggle. And lastly, our sufferings is not for naught. There can be meaning and purpose born. Hear me. There can be meaning and purpose born. Allow for it to produce in you a steadfast, staying, abiding power. To close off, there's this pastoral word that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica. I don't have it on the screen. It's First Thessalonians chapter 1. And it's this kind of like triad of pastoral encouragements. He says this, right? We thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. I'll say that again. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Isn't that beautiful? So often our work isn't inspired by faith, but anxiety. So often our work isn't prompted by love, but rather a love for self or wanting to prove and please others. But the last one is curious. Endurance inspired by hope. Often my own endurance isn't inspired by hope, but inspired by a fear of failure, inspired by responsibility, inspired by my pride, my own strength, or worse, shame and guilt, only to run out and burn out. But scripture says that there is a better way. It's to have our endurance inspired by hope. That's the claim of our faith. That's the claim of the cross, that if you hold on, if you stay, if you endure, there is beauty, glory, or in the words of Peter, praise, glory, and honor to Christ on the other side. That's the claim of our faith. That's the claim of Christ. And this is where we hope to end at the series, at the end of the series, an endurance inspired by hope. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want that? Don't you desire that? You know, there, there are a few things I'll be, as I wrap up, I just want to queue up to you. Uh, we'll have a survey that we'll push out to you, uh, I think, by the end of today. And this survey will really help us understand where many of you are at in your faith, what you struggle with. And this will help shape and frame the content in the next few weeks. It's very interesting. First time doing this. Uh, I'll have you know that all this content, all these things, um, you know, for the first time, it's a group effort. Uh, me, Janice, and Tim, we're working together on this. And so it's a group effort kind of a thing, uh, giving different perspectives and stuff. So it's really powerful and uh, really unique experience, you know, with 
felt so much joy and anticipation even in the preparation. And we so uh, love you and want to serve you well. Uh, there'll be a few things coming up. There'll be life group materials that I think will be really important to work through. And no doubt, you know, when we talk about stuff like that, you know, many of you would have pain surface and we want to serve you as you go through that. And so I believe the prayer ministry will be available today. Yes? No, not today. Next week. Next week, sorry. Uh, yeah. Okay, next week, the prayer ministry will be available. We'll give you more details on that. Uh, and also... The pastors are here for you. We want to be with you. And so if you struggle and you're feeling a whole bunch of stuff, please reach out to us. We would love to speak to you. Or if you're unable to help, we have friends, uh, trusted friends that we can direct you to as well. And we'll have some bonus content. We'll have podcasts, interviews, testimonies, discussions, all that good stuff. The daily won't be back, sorry. But uh, <laughs> we'll get there someday. Right. To close up, I want to say this, right? Coming back to Frankel, you know, I, I, it's such a beautiful book that I encourage you to pick up, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel made this point uh, in his book that he'll tell this story uh, of people in a concentration camp and uh, he could tell when a person would die, would, would, uh, would, would you know, uh, collapse. Uh, and, and usually there's telltale signs. And one of the signs is that the person would uh, smoke his last cigarette uh, and, you know, he'll, he'll take the last cigarette, smoke it, right? And then he notes that they never lived more than two days. He said that that act of smoking, that act of finding relief in, in the cigarette uh, was the beginning of the end. Really powerful story. Now he says this, Our greatest freedom is the freedom to choose our attitude. The one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. It's not freedom from conditions, but it's freedom to take a stand toward conditions. And he goes on to say this, We need to stop asking, what can I get out of life? And ask instead, what can life get out of me? It's beautiful. And what can life get on me? And I, I, I want to say to you that through trials, through testing, and through circumstances, there is maturity on the other side. So yes, welcome to your difficult life. <laughs> welcome to church. Welcome to this community of fellow sufferers. But also, welcome to grace. Welcome to redemption. Welcome to purpose. Welcome to meaning. Welcome to the way of Jesus, a path that does not avoid suffering, but goes through it because there is joy and resurrection on the other side. That is the promise of Christ. Amen. Can we all stand? Awesome, awesome. Beautiful. You know, I'll share more of my story um, in, in the weeks to come, and many of you know, uh, you know a bunch of my stories and, and, and what I went through three, four years ago. But I remember uh, a couple of years ago during... Ooh, okay. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago during church camp, you know, I was talking to uh, Andrew Gardner, who was the speaker in our camp. I was just sharing, you know, that, that hey, you know, I had this, uh, you know, I, I felt sick, I have this chronic condition... And one of the things that I kind of grapple and struggle with is like, you know, this feeling that I've dis I'm disqualified or I'm a hypocrite. Here I am on every Sunday talking about health, wholeness, and like, nothing's impossible with Jesus, but then I have this condition that I struggle with. And I was just telling him that story. He, say, he, he said this to me, you know, after he heard, he said, he said this, and he's like, that's your limp. That's your limp, Andre. That's your limp. 
And he goes on to say this, you know, the best pastors I know are ones who walk with a limb. Because God uses their brokenness and brings others into wholeness and restoration. And that short exchange, you know, took me out of trauma and just like, you know, like just reveling in my brokenness and my pain. And it gave me a vision for what God wanted to do in and through my life. And I say the same to you today. Would you allow God to take the broken, painful things in your life and redeem them to bring others into wholeness? There's this beautiful line in scripture that says, instead of shame, he gives a double portion. For God's people, instead of shame, he gives us a double portion. He gives us a purpose and a calling. So let's begin this next few weeks of journeying together in faith with a simple prayer. I invite you to lift your hands and close your eyes before we go back into song and respond to Christ. And the prayer is simple. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Meet with us as we come to you. In your own way, just echo that prayer. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Our faith is not in psychology or theories or methodology. Our faith is in the Spirit who just, as Jesus did, to the two of the road of the mayors can birth in us a burning heart. As we come to him broken, contrite, laid bare, with our pain and suffering, the spirit is able to work wonders and turn ashes, brokenness, ugly into beauty. So let's invite the spirit to meet with us. Say it, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Invite the Spirit's work in your life. Ask for the Spirit to surface areas to which you are suppressed. Ask for the Spirit to lead you in this exploration. Ask for the Spirit to bring you into redemption, wholeness and grace. Let's spend a few moments leaning the Spirit together. Let's take some time. Thank you, Spirit.